Drumming. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, featuring conversations with ground-level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, welcome to Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta, and today I'm talking with Chris Parker, whose 50-year career on the New York scene has included work with Bob Dylan, G.E. Smith, Stuff, the Brecker Brothers, Natalie Cole, Aretha Franklin, Quincy Jones, the Saturday Night Live Band, and many, many more. He also leads his own trio, which has just released a new record. We would appreciate your support on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and a donation in any amount gets you access to exclusive content from our former guests. Think of this as professional development for drummers, all useful and actionable lessons for the working pro. We're populating new content regularly and as little as $1 a month gets you access to all of it. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also make a one-time donation through PayPal. There are links for both on our homepage at workingdrummer.net. While you're there, you can learn more about this episode and check out our archive of over 300 episodes. Also, please subscribe to Working Drummer Podcast on your platform of choice. We're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and YouTube. And be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Lastly, however you listen, please leave us a rating and review. This helps new listeners find us. Our Patreon content now features Will Kennedy discussing the recording of his song Samaritan, which he composed for the new Yellow Jackets record. We've also got lots of other drummers on that Patreon series, including Ash Sohn and Eric Slick, talking about specific songs they've tracked drums for and all the technical and creative aspects of those recording processes. There's also a video by me illustrating my favorite warm-up routine, which I've found to be really useful and effective over the years. You can get access to this and the rest of our Patreon content for as little as $1 a month, so check that out. We'd really appreciate your support. Again, that's patreon.com slash working drummer. I admittedly was not as hip to Chris as I was to some of his contemporaries, but I quickly learned that his resume and his reputation among artists, producers, and particularly his fellow musicians on the New York scene is every bit as sterling as Steve Gadd or any other member of the cohort he came up with. It was also really interesting to hear about his passion for drawing and painting. Uh, He has some really cool insights about visual art and how it diverges with music in his mind and in his approach. So here we go with Chris Parker. You've had such a long and prolific career. There's there's so much of it I want to get to. Um, but let's let's just start with the uh, the trio record that you just put out. Talk a little bit about you know what that project is, who's on it, who it's dedicated to. The trio record is Kyoko Oyobe on keyboards, and she'll be here today for this rehearsal actually. And Amin Salim is the bass player, and this is the 
the third trio record we've done together. Um, the previous one, Blueprint, was dedicated to Arif Martin and actually produced by Arif's son, Joe. So it's kind of dedicated to Arif. This one is just um, uh, self, self-produced, self uh, self-released thing that happened because of the pandemic, as so many other artists I know, so many other players I know did the same thing. When all the gigs dried up and tours were canceled and stuff like that, all right, time to finish up these compositions that have been laying around here and let's make a record. So it's kind of what we did. Um, I was able to get them all in the studio at the same time, which is, uh, Kiyoko lives in the city, but Amin uh, moved to Rome a couple of years ago. And he wow. Uh, an Italian lady and they have a daughter and he's really set up in Rome now. He does gigs over there all the time. I think he goes to, somebody told me yesterday he's, he's going to London to play with Joe Locke, but I don't know if he's coming to the city soon. I have to coordinate with him to see if we can get him in town all at the same time. Um, so we, I had these tunes, you know, that I'd been working on and finished up, uh, five or six of them to get it together to put on the record and that's how the record happens and uh, it officially comes out September 30th and um, looking forward to people hearing it and and uh, listening to it yeah yeah is this is this the first thing is this the first thing you've done like as a leader in terms of putting your own compositions out there Oh, no, no. I had, uh, there's two other trio albums. Oh, cool. Okay. And before that, I had a group called Tofi and the Pussycats. Tofi is my nickname, short for Christopher. Uh, and that was a that was a good band. We did a live record and then a studio record, but that had my own compositions on it, too. Um, before that stuff... Uh, Used to play some of my tunes. This is a long time ago. You were, you were not even around yet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I might have been around, but not sentient. I'm, I'm not sure. <laughs> right. So yeah, it's, uh, it's always exciting. It's like the fruition of a, an endeavor. You start working on it and don't know how it's going to turn out, and all the ancillary things that go with it, uh, with, with producing a project. Uh, the rehearsals and the actual playing are the best part. You know, it's all the other stuff, getting it released and uh, organizing the photo shoot and the the EPK and all that stuff. Right. Um, takes time, but I'm getting used to it. So in terms of, um, you know, your ambition with this record or this group, you know, it, it, it came to fruition, like you said, because of COVID, like everybody's got the time. Let's, you know, let's occupy it with this project. Um, so now are like, are you looking to tour this group? Are you looking to kind of make your trio uh, more of a, a going concern or is it just kind of a, a recording project to put out there and be done with it? I would love to tour with this group and I've been uh, exploring a couple of possibilities, maybe going to Japan with this group. Uh, certainly playing around the city would be great. Uh, I don't have a, a booking agent or somebody that I work with for, for gigs, so it's a little difficult. It's me calling and 
talking to the club owner and trying to uh, fit us into a slot that works for him or her and uh, for the guys in the the guys and the girl and the group. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, having a booking agent, like, I mean, it, it always helps in any city, but I would imagine that New York, uh, it's, it's almost essential unless you're someone like you who just has sort of decades of familiarity and, and some goodwill maybe built up with, with a few club owners. <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of people who said, let me know when you're ready to come in. Um, the group I'm talking about rehearsing with today, we've got a gig uh, in two weeks at the Sugar Bar, which is right in my neighborhood. That's Ashford and Simpson's place on 72nd Street. And that's a very comfortable environment. And usually I, I call uh, Jimmy Simpson first, you know, when I've got a new thing or a new idea. The trio has played there a couple of times. And uh, Tofi and the Pussycats actually had a reunion gig there last December. And we did a, a video and everything. So that's a good place to start. But I like Smalls and Mesro and... Uh, a lot of places have have folded, you know, um, since the pandemic. But the strong ones are still out there. You know, Birdland and Iridium is back and the Blue Note um, Village Vanguard. And then there's a place in Westchester called Jazz Forum Arts, which is a really nice venue. There's a place in Brooklyn called Soapbox Gallery, which is really a nice place to play. So... These are all uh, on my list of right. of calling and nudging and what about <laughs> yeah. what about this? Can I bring the band in? Yeah, yeah. So, and I was going to ask you about just sort of the 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 New York landscape in terms of live music and um and you know the 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 clubs and the places to play. Um, what what year did you move to New York? Well. I uh, came to go to art school here in 1968. Wow. Uh, I went to School of Visual Arts and got a degree in fine arts. But the whole time I was there, I was doing gigs on the weekend. Uh, they used to call them casuals, uh, club dates, you know, with different groups and different bands. Um, and then, I don't know, close to the end of my art school, I answered an ad in Rolling Stone to audition for a band in Woodstock. And I thought, oh, this could be fun. So I went up there and auditioned. Uh, and that kind of transplanted me from New York City to Woodstock for a couple of years. And then I came back to New York, I don't know, 73, I think, or 74. And got serious about uh, being in the music business and decided, you know, that playing music with other musicians and being on a, on a team was more fun than standing around my studio and talking to myself. What do you think? It's more blue, a little more blue. I think, yeah. <laughs> well, if you, you know, maybe light blue, it, it could work, but no, I don't know. What do you think? You know, I was doing a lot of that <laughs> and I really miss the, uh, the interaction with other humans and other musicians. So I really sort of gravitated towards music business and um, came back to the city and just tried to get involved wherever I could. Right. So you, you answered a, a couple of my questions about your, your path here. Like, first of all, what brought you to New York, which was uh, uh, art school and the fact that you're a visual <laughs> artist as well. 
Um, but I'm, I'm always interested in it, like, what, what is the point or what is the, um, uh, what, what's the point in people's lives where they decide like, I'm going to do music, like drums is going to be my thing. Um, and it sounds like it was, it was a decision about like the community of music versus the more solitary pursuit of, of being a, a starving painter. Exactly. The, the community is what really attracted me, you know, and uh, I'm still attracted to that community. I'm always uh, looking for and listening to amazing players, people who are way better than me and have got way more chops and technique and compositional abilities. You know, there's uh, constant striving to rise to a higher level of uh, musicianship and uh musicology you know all the different kinds of music that people play all over the world not just new york but um uh, like i really enjoyed your interview with will kennedy you know talking about yeah uh, his roots and how he got it it's always fascinating to me to to listen to somebody else's story especially a drummer and how they got into it and what started them off and stuff so definitely the uh, the interaction and the being part of a team like when you're in the studio you know you sort of tacitly agree to pursue this endeavor and you're going to make a document of this performance you know and hopefully the document of the performance is the penultimate version of the of the take where the singer is happy or the horn player is happy and everybody was working together to achieve a goal that they couldn't have achieved by themselves. That's a very uh, satisfying and, and uh, elevating experience. You know, we were part of this record or part of this video or this streaming event, whatever it was, you know, to uh, adapt the current terms. Right. Right. So when you come back to New York from, from Woodstock, um, can you uh, paint a picture, as it were, uh, for me about like who's who's in New York at that time? What's the landscape like? Who are the drummers that you're looking up to that are like, holy shit, I I want that guy's life. <laughs> uh, I never I never wanted that guy's life specifically. <laughs> was influenced. Um, I came back from Woodstock uh, after. Uh, there was one sort of pivotal gig in Woodstock where I have, I was playing with a gospel band and at the last minute, the bass player disappeared, literally disappeared. Nobody could find him. And I was stuck for a bass player and my, let's see, <laughs> my girlfriend at the time, who later became my wife, her sister had just met a bass player who had moved up from Miami uh, named Will Lee. And she said, oh, this guy is great. You know, he just got here from Miami and he had moved from Miami to play with his band Dreams. So he was in New York and he came up and did the gig and it was a love at first note kind (laughs) of, you know, we locked in. In fact, this year we celebrate 50 years of playing together. And today is his birthday. Oh man. Well, happy happy birthday, Will. That's, that's amazing. 50 years playing with with will i mean not on every single gig obviously but like i think every musician uh you know sort of um 
dreams of having a, a, a partnership and a comrade uh, that's that deep and that long. Yeah, definitely. So he said, uh, I mean, we kept in touch and he said, oh, you got to come to New York, you know? And I said, well, I was, I lived in New York for a while. He said, yeah, but there's a great scene. And, um, and I was kind of, a sounds arrogant, but I was kind of a big fish in a little pond in Woodstock. There was only one studio, Bearsville Studios at that time. And I was doing a lot of different stuff there with, Todd Rundgren and Bonnie Raitt and uh, John Simon, the guy who worked with the band and uh, a lot of different folks that came to Woodstock to record, you know, I would, I would do the record and I worked with Paul Butterfield there. Um, so when he said, you know, come to New York, I said, all right, let's try it. And that's what I did. I moved into the same building that he lived into. He, he, uh, told me about an apartment that was available. And he lived on the first floor. Don Grolnick, great keyboard player, lived on the fourth floor. There was a tenor player and a singer, uh, Margaret Dorn and Denny Morales, who lived on the second floor, I think, and I moved into the third floor. Wow. So that was the beginning of uh, living in New York and trying to scrounge around for gigs, whatever I could find, you know, and I work with a lot of different people um, and just did whatever, you know, whatever I was called for and whatever I could uh, kind of force my way in, nudge my way into, hey, I'm... <laughs> and actually met um, Gordon Edwards, his bass player on a jingle, and he said, ah, come up to my club, Stuffy. And... Mm -hmm. That was the beginning of uh, the relationship with him and the beginning of the band that became Stuff. So that really um, put me on the map. There was a lot of people who came to that club who heard me play, said, oh, I want you on my record. I want you to do this project with me. And uh, that was the beginning of a, of a great relationship with the music community in New York. Right, right. So you mentioned the band Stuff, and um, you know Steve Gadd is also very closely associated with that band. How, like, what was the? Were you before Gadd? Was he before you? Did you guys trade off? How did you occupy that band together? <laughs> um, I I started, and it was just uh, Gordon Edwards, Richard T, and Cornell Dupree and me and sometimes there was a singer or a tenor player who would also join in um and we played for maybe two years you know uh at that same club mckell's and um eventually eric gale started coming around so there were two guitar players piano bass and drums and then um that same building, Carmine Street, where I lived with Will and Don Grolnick, the, the Brecker brothers started to come over there to work on Randy Brecker's new material. And Dave Sanborn came and Steve Kahn came. So we started rehearsing in Don Grolnick's apartment and eventually made a record. And Randy wanted to go on the road. So uh, I said, well, I got this thing uptown that I'm kind of committed to, well, you have to get a sub. So 
I met Steve at the Village Vanguard. He was playing with Joe Farrell and Joe Beck, uh, Herb Bushler on bass. And we started talking afterwards. He sounded amazing. And, you know, Doug is playing immediately. We started talking. And I said, would you be interested in subbing for, with this R&B band that I work with? And he said, sure. So that's how I introduced him to Gordon and Richard and Cornell and Eric. And I went on the road with the Brecker brothers and Steve did it, I don't know, for a couple of months. And when I came back, of course, they had fallen in love with Steve. <laughs> and, but the bass player, the leader, Gordon, said, I want you both. So that's when we started doing double drums, which was really an amazing experience. You wow. know, and that's the way it was for uh, eight years. And if he was doing, you know, Paul Simon or Tom Scott or Grover Washington or something, I would do it by myself. And if I went back out with the Brecker brothers or with Ashford and Simpson or whoever it was, he would do it by himself. But we, so from that point on, we kind of traded off or as, as many times as possible did it together. And the live album we did and the records that we did in the studio were all double drums. Wow. That's amazing. I didn't, I didn't realize that I got to go, <laughs> I got to go study up some more on, on all the stuff, <laughs> stuff. Um, right, right. time in new york it's it's the 70s um and it like through through reading your bio and sort of other interviews and and checking out some videos it, it seemed like um you were uh just sort of contemporaries kind of in the mix with uh what's been referred to as uh the council of steves on this podcast which is steve gad steve ferroni and uh steve jordan uh-huh. Right. So, like, I don't know where you all f fall age-wise, but but I, am I correct in in sort of assuming that the four of you and and probably some others were just swimming around in New York together at this time? In, indeed, there was a lot of lot of swimming. <laughs> I, um, Steve uh, Gad is a little older than me. I think Steve Ferroni and I might be the same age. Steve Jordan might be a year younger. Um, cause I remember him coming to sessions that I was doing, you know, before he had a mustache <laughs> and, and he would hang out. He had just, um, graduated from high school of music and art along with uh, a lot of other great players came out of that, which is, I live now a block away from there. Um, so yeah, there was a, it was a big pool of, of great talent and uh, amazing players everybody had their their own thing but we always uh, got together there was a night i remember at mckell's where um, we came to hear roy haynes steve Froney was there steve gad was there 
and we're all in the basement tap dancing because <laughs> Steve Ferroni tap danced as a kid. Steve Gann and his brother Eddie had a had an act where they tap danced. Roy Haynes was a tap dancer. Man. Uh, and I, my girlfriend, my wife at the time was a tap dancer. So I had some time steps and some buck and wings and things that I could do. And it was hilarious. We were all tap dancing and Bernard Purdy walked in and said, <laughs> <laughs> Oh man. Um, that was a that was a fun time. But tap dancing is really important to drumming. You know, Buddy Rich is a great tap dancer. The thing of being light on your feet and being able to balance from from foot to foot and the uh, you know physical uh, dexterity with your with your muscles is really important. Really important to playing you know hi hat and bass drum, of course. Right. And the chord and and the whole thing of drumming to me is you know dancing on the drums. You want to make people dance and you want to dance while you're playing. Uh, if possible. Yeah, yeah. I, I interviewed a great drummer in Richmond, Virginia named Dusty Simmons a few years ago. Um, and he he just has like a great physicality by, behind the kit. And, and he really associates it with dancing. If he's like, you know, if I'm, if I'm trying to um, figure out, you know, how I want my groove to feel, I imagine like, how would I dance to this music? And he kind of infuses his drumming with just that mentality of like, how does this music make me want to move? And that really comes through in, in the inflections of his grooves and everything. Um, and that's the other, key. sorry, go ahead. No, that's key. That's great. Um, the other thing you said about tap dancing, I mean, every, every time I watch a really good tap dancer, I'm like, I, I should just trans, I should transcribe this. I feel like, especially for jazz drummers, um, great tap dancers are, are somewhat of a, of an untapped resource pun intended. Uh, <laughs> um, but like the, the vocabulary that they come up with, um, is, I mean, just, you know, by virtue of the fact that it's their feet and not their hands, like it's different. It's related to like jazz drumming vocabulary, but they come up with different stuff. Um, and I, I feel like it's, um, a resource that more jazz drummers should like investigate and steal. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. They had a, um, there's some great, movies uh from the 30s and 40s with fred astaire and ginger rogers you know and uh i think it's top hat or follow the fleet or the gay divorcee or one of them has got fred doing an amazing drum solo you know where he's standing in front of all this vintage stuff and starts tap dancing starts with tap dancing but then goes to the drums and he was a great drummer as well you know he had total chops and you think of all the great entertainers you know that were tap dancers besides buddy rich and sammy davis um all these guys could do a time step and and be that light on your feet you know it's a amazing quality right so as you're sort of uh um progressing in new york you're you're part of this crew drummers and otherwise um are there any points or are there any people uh whose 
influenced, like really changed your drumming or really advanced your drumming, um, whether it was another drummer or somebody you played with? Because you obviously had your shit together by the time you got to New York and and were working a lot. Um, but did uh, did anyone in New York give you an ass kicking that <laughs> that really propelled you forward? <laughs> well, uh, the building I lived in was like three blocks away from the village Vanguard. So I would go as often as I could to hear Elvin Jones or Tony Williams was alive. Um, Grady Tate was alive. Um, I heard those three guys probably more than anybody else, you know, and Elvin is, was just a, a force of nature and same thing with Tony Williams, you know, um, Grady Tate, I really grew up with, you know, on Jimmy Smith records and all these different projects. And we'd say, look for the drummer in the credits. Oh my God, it's Grady Tate again. Yeah. You know, he always sounded comfortable in in any style. Um, He was really a a mentor to me, you know, and I would talk to him as often as possible. And he would be very almost paternal with me, you know, don't worry about this. Don't worry about this. You know, don't worry about the, the reading, you know, just make sure it feels good. And don't forget that you're driving the bus. It's, it's up to you to make it happen. You know, don't let any, I don't care who the leader is, you know, they're counting on you to lay it down and keep it together. And a lot of great practical advice. Elvin was always friendly and lovely, you know, but there was no way I could play what, what he was playing. Right. Or the, playing with with Coltrane or his own his own groups Tony Williams was less approachable but just a phenomenon you know and and brought so many new ideas to the drum set and the playing of the drum set and the playing of time itself you know he was when I was uh, I was still in high school the first time I heard him you know and I said there's no way this kid is 17 and he's playing with Miles Davis and sounds like this. It was radical. You know, nobody ever sounded like that. But uh, so those three guys and Jack DeJanette, I saw as often as possible. In fact, I named my son Jack after Jack DeJanette because he was in Woodstock at the same time that I was. And we ran into each other, but we were kind of in different worlds. You know, I was in a eighth note two and four worlds (laughs) and uh, and he was already Jack DeJanet you know but I had been following him Uh, there was a Charles Lloyd record called Love In with uh, Jack DeJanet and Ron McClure that I wore out playing it you know and his groove and his feel and his approach to the drums was very influential so those and Roy Haynes I'm keeping I'm adding to the list. Right, right. But I saw Elvin a lot. I saw Tony Williams a lot. I saw Grady Tate a lot. I saw Roy Haynes. I've seen Roy Haynes more more recently, more often. I go see him every time he's at the Blue Note. He was very influential uh, on records. He was one of my favorite guys that I heard on the records that I had. And Jack DeJanet. Um And then in that period, early 70s, Harvey Mason was, uh, yeah. you know, with Herbie, um, was amazing influence. And 
his touch and his feel and the funkiness and uh, the way he incorporated uh, Latin stuff into playing R and B was great. Um, well, it's Greg so interesting. So, like so many, uh, you know, the the drummers that you've mentioned uh, come up a lot, obviously on on the podcast as as influences. Um, but you know, the, the difference with you is that like you were on the ground in the room with these guys, and like not not just listening to them, not just learning from them from afar on the records, like most of us, but just like up close, right with them. Yep. And I, I cherish those memories, you know, being able to talk to these guys in person and sit this far away from them at the Village Vanguard uh, and sitting there all night. You know, I'll have another ginger ale, please. I'll have another, <laughs> <laughs> I'll have another ginger ale. Um, and just absorbing their, their whole, uh, I don't know what to call it. You know, it's a mystique. You know, each guy had this this aura that you sit that close and you're like actually in the aura and you see him sweating and you see him, you know, struggling with stuff um, and making split second decisions about, you know, what to play next and how to back up the soloist and all this uh, instinctual stuff you got to observe firsthand. Right. And now, I mean, you can go on YouTube and find all kinds of performances that I never saw. You know, Miles Davis was at with Jimmy Cobb in uh, Europe on some Italian TV station or Harvey. I never got to see uh, live that often, you know, unless we were on the same concert together or something. And there was a couple of times I did get to see him, but beautiful guy and amazing light touch. Um, Dave Garibaldi is another guy with a really light touch but a funky feel yeah uh, andy newmark was around and rick Murata was around at all the same time as me you know those guys were recording and we would run into each other in the studio it was very influential in terms of their uh, attitude and right. stuff that they Andy Newmark's stuff on the Sly Records is amazing. And Greg Errico before him, very influential. Right. And Purdy was running around with you also, right? Purdy was um, too, yeah. yeah. God, what a piece of work he is. Um, you know, speaking of Purdy, like with what you said about, you know, somebody's mystique or somebody's aura, um, you know, there's, there's no greater example of that than Purdy, I think. But it got me thinking about... Um, when you are able to see somebody live and especially see somebody up close and then especially be able to talk with them just like as a person, um, like you said, you, you get a sense of, of just what they're about as a, as a person, as a player. Um, and it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, like just, just knowing who you are as a person and, and behind the drums, um, and, uh, just letting that, letting that come through, leaning into that every time you play. And, you know, you can pick up on some of that from a recording, but actually being in the room with, with a human musician, like you get a very clear sense of like, oh, this guy or this woman is like a very specific thing. So how, like, what about myself? Can I make that specific, you know, beyond working, beyond being versatile, beyond, 
um, you know, staying employed or, or employable or whatever. It's, it's like that guy knows what he gives a shit about. What do I give a shit about? Right. Right. Um, that's what I set out to do when I came back to New York. I wanted to, to absorb these uh, influences and these guys had, who had been so inspiring to me. Uh, Mel Lewis is another one, you know, that I got to hang out with a little bit and wow. see him live. Guard or, right, because uh, he was still Cap- doing the the uh, Vanguard Orchestra at that time, right? Fad Jones, Mel Lewis right. Orchestra. I got them a lot. Um, and we would run into each other at this, I can't remember the name of the studio, but I was doing records with Lou Rawls and Mel Lewis would be doing something. I don't know if it was a big band or a small group or something, but we would run into each other in this little tiny elevator with our trap cases and, <laughs> and bemoan the fact, man, I got to make a bigger elevator for trap cases. <laughs> man, you know, but in, just, uh, in New York, I think you should be grateful that there was a fucking elevator. <laughs> but um uh the opportunity you know that i had i'm I'm really grateful for to run into these guys and hang out with them and talk to them and and see what they were about off the drums you know what were their concerns what were their uh what was their style you know what were they thinking about when they weren't actually behind the kit. I knew they were killers once they got behind the kit in whatever respect they, you know, whatever uh, style they were playing in. But it was really informative to meet the person out from behind the drums, you know, and that really uh, influenced me a lot and showed me, you know, what was possible and, and uh, and what was detrimental too, you know. Um, Mel Lewis used to have a, an ashtray attached to a cymbal stand and it was almost more important to get the next drag on the cigarette. I mean, he never faltered or slowed down or sped up or anything like that, but I, I could not believe that it was that important to smoke a cigarette <laughs> while you're playing. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> That's something I said, you know what? I never want to be in that place, you know, where I've got to got to have a cigarette nearby. Um, and I saw my father struggle with it, you know, trying to stop smoking. He finally did, but he went through hell and hypnotism. And wow. Brawl. And I saw him, you know, it was like Jekyll and Hyde when he when he wasn't smoking. And he was a longtime smoker, you know, two packs a day or something. Yeah. And it was something you grew up with, you know, uh, in the 30s and 40s, it was glamour, glamorized in the movies. So seeing, um, seeing there's no other word for it, you know, bad habits and good habits and, and what keeps you on the straight and narrow and what keeps you at the, at the peak level for playing, you know, for performing, those things become really important. Uh, 
line items on your your resume that you're both known for uh, are playing in the house band in uh, in Saturday Night Live in the 80s, uh, and then not long after that, playing with Bob Dylan. Um, and it seems like the, uh, the the source of both those gigs was G.E. Smith. Um, so talk about yeah. your relationship with, with G.E. Smith and how that came to be. Um, he was the band leader at Saturday Night Live, and we got along well and uh, played a lot of music together. And he got a call. I don't know who actually called him. Maybe Elliot Roberts, who was Bob's manager at the time, called him. Um, and at that time, it was T-Bone Woke on bass uh, in the Saturday Night Live band. And he just said one day, you know, would you be interested in, in playing with Bob Dylan? I said, sure, let's let's do it. So we he uh, got a rehearsal together and we went and met Bob and uh, rehearsed at this place called Montana, which is no longer there. And I don't know, played... Uh, 50 different tunes maybe on the first day and then another 50 the next day just kind of fooling around you know and and not all bob dylan tunes a lot we played beach boys tunes and uh jimmy reed tunes and hank snow tunes and hank williams tunes we, we played a lot of different stuff and jammed and stuff and it felt good and i thought oh, this is fun this is a great experience and t-bone not only played bass but he played accordion he played acoustic guitar uh, he and g would sometimes sing backup you know um uh, so there were a lot of a lot of possibilities and rehearsed a couple of times and didn't think any more of it and then uh, one day g said you know they want us to come back and what about a tour this summer i said uh, what about the show and he said well we'll work around the show and that's exactly what we did for the next uh, three and a half years. You know, we toured with Bob based on the Saturday Night Live uh, show schedule. And they, uh, Bob's management, Elliot Roberts, Lookout Management, I think it was, uh, worked, worked with us. You know, if we had a show that weekend, we didn't book a gig on Saturday. But a lot of times, GE and I were flying back and forth, you know, um, let's go to Portland for, for Friday night, but be back Saturday morning for the show. Wow. <laughs> We've got a lot of miles and T-Bone uh, decided not to do it uh, because he was really like the musical director for Hall and Oates at the time. And he wanted to, to stay with them. So we got uh, Kenny Aronson on bass, did the first couple of years of the tour. And then Tony Garnier after that. And, Tony is still doing it 30 years later. Wow, wow. Lifetime gig for him. Yeah. I saw an interview uh, with GE, and I don't, I don't know what year the interview was from. I think it was pretty recent. Um, but he was talking about that day or two that, that you guys uh, sort of came together and, and played with Bob. And the the way he tells it, it, you know, the way it was presented to him, it was like, Bob's in town, he just wants to play. Like, you know, I, he, he asked me if I could put a band together. So let, you know, let's just go jam with Bob. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> he mentioned the song Peggy O like Bob, Bob asked you guys if, uh, you know, do you know Peggy O and, and GE was like, hell yeah. Like we're, you know, we're the guys who know Peggy O. Um, and like 
it was after the fact. It was like days later that uh, whoever uh, had recommended GE to Bob got back to GE and was like, you guys got the gig. And GE was like, I, that was an audition? I thought Bob was just wanted to jam. Like, <laughs> was that the case? <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I mean, it never, it never felt like an audition. But uh, successively, as, as the day went on and we were able to, to play his songs or anything that he wanted to play, I think uh, let him know musically, you know, that we were, we were down. We were ready for uh, whatever he felt like throwing at us. And we didn't play the, the famous ones. We didn't play like a Rolling Stone. We didn't play Rainy Day Women. We didn't play Highway 61. We didn't play Maggie's Farm. We didn't play Subterranean Homesick Blues. We didn't play um, It's All Over Now, Baby Blue. We didn't do, you know, really Tangled Up in Blue. Uh, we didn't do the familiar songs until we were out on the road. And then they were, uh, you get a set list for that night. Oh, we're going to do Like a Rolling Stone. Oh, great. We're going to do Boots of Spanish Leather. Oh, great. We're going to do uh, this, you know. Uh, but the... The audition, <laughs> the rehearsal playing with Bob was just kind of ex exploratory, you know, see what we can come together. Right. And it seemed like that's what Bob uh, was sort of investigating about you guys, because, you know, he probably assumed that you could and would play Tangled Up in Blue. But like, I, I love how G.E. Smith talks about that song Peggy O. Because I think it's like a Civil War era folk song or yeah. something or like that is a deep <laughs> cut. And and yep. so Bob was like, okay, let me see where these guys are coming from. Let's see how let's see how far back uh, their their frame of reference goes. And and yep. G. E. Smith made me laugh. He was just like, yeah, Bob, we're the guys who know Peggy O. Like we're we're your guys. <laughs> we knew uh, Barbara Allen too. Barbara Allen is like a Scottish hymn. I had only heard it before in the the original Christmas Carol with Alistair Sim. Wow. And. Uh, Uncle Scrooge, you know, finally has the has the dreams and goes to his nephew's house, and that's what they're playing. Uh, so I knew that song from from that movie, you know, soundtrack of that movie. But that was one of Bob's favorites: Barbara Allen and Peggy O, and uh, a lot of great stuff, a lot of great things that that he wanted to play. And he has a you know vast knowledge of Americana and folk music and all kinds of influences. So it was great. You mentioned, uh, you know, sort of mystique and aura when it comes to drummers and, you know, there's just endless amounts of mystique surrounding Dylan. Um, as someone who played with him, you know, it, like, you know, someone for, for whom he was a, a band leader, a boss, um, you know, did, did he, maintain that kind of mystique did he remain a mystical presence or was there a point where familiarity was just like yeah this is just another guy no it never never got to just another guy i mean he's <laughs> such a such a, a genius yeah. you know uh, it was really hard if we were in la or new york because people in la and new york were just besiege him with requests, you know, and there would be a stack of manila envelopes at the door, not only envelopes, but things like car bumpers and steer skulls and <laughs> stuff. 
stuff that people wanted to bring them and give them and and none of it ever got thrown away you know it was all taken in and cataloged and i'm sure it's uh somewhere in in storage or maybe at his house i don't know but those two cities would would make it difficult to even know where he was you know and there would be no sound check or anything but he would appear for the gig but once we were out on the road whether it was uh canada or u.s or europe or scandinavia or something like that he's a normal guy i mean not a normal guy in the sense of uh, let's have breakfast together and hang out and talk about baseball or something like that. But he was a normal guy, you know, with uh, things that he wanted to do while he was on the road and music that he wanted to, to play while we were out there. Um, but he's Bob Dylan. Yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had the, audacity at uh, one of those rehearsals to ask him, you know, Bob, what do you, what do you think about uh, what I'm playing? You know, is this going to work for the tune? You know, and he was like, you know, you do your thing. Uh, not in those exact words, but, you know, this is your department. You know, you play what you think is appropriate. So from that, from that point on, I really did make up my own parts and, just try to play something that was a good accompaniment for him and uh, work with the song. And sometimes it was the, the same song, you know, played a couple of different ways depending on the night. And he especially, uh, if, he, if he thought the band knew his arrangement or knew what he was going to play, he would immediately change it. Hmm. No way he wanted to be for anything to be predictable or anything but uh, like a jazz gig. You know, you don't want to play Stella the same way twice. You know, there's always a new approach. It's a beautiful song. It's got great changes. It's fun to play over, but you never play it the same way twice. And he was that way with all his songs. You know, if he if he ever felt that we knew what he was going to play, he would immediately change it. Um, even change the meter, you know different tempo, different meter from instead of 4-4, four, four, play it in 6-8. Uh, instead of as a as a waltz, play it in 4-4. Four, four. I mean, yeah, yeah. It seems like he's, which, he's famous or infamous, uh, depending on who you ask, for just constantly changing it up and constantly keeping right. everyone guessing. Um, and you know, I, I, I understand the frustration of a diehard Dylan fan who, who just wants to hear, uh, a given song the way it is on the record. But, um, you know, Dylan as an artist, as a creative and, and as a very restless one at that, I think is more coming from the place. Like I'm, I am not a song and dance man. You are going to reckon with what I'm feeling today. Exactly. And that's how it was for, uh almost four years, you know, the, it was always different. It was always fresh. Um, I felt bad for Tony Garnier when he came on the band because trying to tell him what the set was going to be or what, uh, what kind of feel we were playing. I said, this is all up in the air. This is all up for grabs. You know, I can tell you that it's going to be this kind of feel. And we would sit in the back of the bus and I would, you know, use uh, hot rods or something to, to play the beat. And I said, but it may not be this at all. It may be completely different. So just stay loose. And he did. 
he was great. Yeah. Whether he was playing upright or electric, you know, and it's, and it's worked for him for uh, 30 plus years. He's yeah. still doing it. It can be so easy to um, become, you know, especially for me having gone to, uh, to, college and grad school, what my, my co-host calls swing school, uh, <laughs> you know, you, it's easy to become dependent on, uh, like reading a chart or, um, you know, dependent on a certain arrangement of a song, like wanting to know how things are going to go so that, um, you can do it well. Um, and obviously I have, uh, much less issue being in that headspace in a jazz setting. Um, but being in that headspace in a pop setting or a rock setting or whatever, it's it 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 seems like um, uh, I don't know. It seems less secure, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, and it can be so rewarding to be with an artist like that who you know isn't isn't a jazz artist, but is approaching it in an in the moment sort of jazz way. Um, <laughs> Having having done all of this session work and you know the the SNL thing, which I would imagine was pretty tightly scripted, um, was it tough to make that adjustment? No, it was refreshing mm. to make that adjustment to play the uh, pre-records and the play-ons and the band buttons and all the stuff in Saturday Night Live, and backing up whatever artists we needed to back up. Um, it was refreshing to go out with Bob and have it just be loose, you know, and here's the set list and we'll see how it goes. You know, we'll, we'll start with uh, Maggie's farm, but after that uh, we'll see what happens and stuff did happen, you know, uh, whether it was a, a power failure, you know, in the stadium or <laughs> he would play something on a, on acoustic instead of electric, or he would decide to, uh, e and G would decide to do an acoustic version of Knocking on Heaven's Door, uh, or he would decide he wanted to do like an acoustic set in the middle of the the band set, you know, where he's got the guitar and the orthodontist nightmare harmonica holder. <laughs> right, right. Uh, which was great. You know, it was great to hear him play like his roots, you know, you could imagine him at Gertie's Folk City or at uh, uh, one of the places on Bleecker Street in the, in the early days and why he became Bob Dylan. You know, he's mesmerizing. And his vocal phrasing was a constant source of uh, fascination to me. Like in the way that Frank Sinatra is able to phrase over a chord change, you know, or uh, presage to the chord change that's coming with the, the way he sings the lyrics and Bob would do the same thing, you know, wait until the change had passed and then sing the melody part that goes there and never lose his place or never lose the, the play, the meter of the song or anything like that, but just, you know, stretch out these phrases or compact them, you know, put, yeah. put the whole, over the first change and then let the other changes go by right uh that's singing anything <laughs> i think that's something dylan doesn't get credit for because like you know how many how many impersonations of bob dylan are running around just like the caricature of like the you know everybody must get stoned you know all that shit and he like you know there are some songs on which he does sound like that like there's a reason that caricature sort of exists but like you said, he's just, he's capable of, uh, 
so much as a vocalist in terms of phrasing and and rhythm. Like it's one thing I I really listen for uh, rhythm and time in vocalists because I feel like a lot of vocalists don't get enough credit for having such impeccable time. Um, yeah. Even if what they're singing is over the bar line or not, it, you know, like you can tell when a vocalist like Sinatra or like Dylan or like Tom Waits, like just knows in their bones where the phrases are, where the chord is, and is able to separate themselves from that to create something else. Yeah. More amazing than that is, are the bass players who sing, like yeah. McCartney, sing, and. Um, Rick Danko with the band and a couple of uh, Timothy Timothy Schmidt with the Eagles playing the playing the roots but singing the melody playing the roots with good time you know and you're locked in with the drummer and everything but singing a melody that has nothing nothing to do with with those roots it's amazing right it reminds me of a uh, um when I saw Levon Helm on Letterman, I think it was in the eighties or something, but there was this great interview he did where Letterman asked him, uh, you know, is it, is it, is it hard to, uh, you know, sing and play drums at the same time? And like, you kind of expect Levon to say something like, uh, Oh, you know, I've been, I've, I've been used to it now for a while. I kind of, I kind of got it down. And, but Levon was just like, it's, it's really hard. Like I'm still on the case. (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's really hard. Uh, I used to sing, play, and play drums in all the bands that I had as a kid, and it was very difficult. He was amazing. Levon and uh, Don Felder, uh, Don Henley, yep, uh, are amazing. You know, sing great, great phrasing and stuff. And apart from their drumming, the the vocal sounds great. But you factor in the drumming, and it really works as a as a unified whole, it's amazing. Levon is my favorite at that, you know, singing drummer. Yeah. Ringo, too, you know. Ringo can sing his ass off, man. Yeah, absolutely. Going back to the SNL thing, um, this was during the days you mentioned, like, you know, backing up musical guests. Because now, like, the musical guest is a band or an artist with right. their own band. Um, right. But uh, you guys were, like, literally a house band who were sort of backing up, uh, you know, the artists who were coming through. So can, can you just take us through, like, uh, you know, the Dylan tour notwithstanding, but, like, an average week – uh, on SNL, like how did it how did it go? Kind of rehearsing the buttons and the all the things you were talking about, and the guest artist. Well, the the buttons and the play ons and the playoffs and and that stuff would probably not be until Thursday or Friday or maybe even Saturday morning. And get there, you know, early and rehearse for a couple of hours, and then the writers are constantly updating the skits and changing things. And somebody has a great idea or somebody, something happens in the news, which, which eclipses everything that they had ready for the show. Um, so if there was a guest artist, they would get into town maybe Sunday or Monday and, uh, 
they would have a meeting where they discuss, not with me, but they would discuss, you know, what material material they were going to do if it's if they had a current hit or uh, something that they wanted to do specifically, they decide on that, and then maybe we rehearse with them Wednesday, have a rehearsal with uh, Elvis Costello or uh, Linda Ronstadt and Aaron Neville or Paul Simon or uh, uh, David Gilmore uh, and or Clapton, you know, and they would decide based on the rehearsal, okay, that's what that's what I want to do. Or they might change their mind and say, you know what, instead of that, I want to do I want to do these two tunes. Uh, and each each guest artist used to get two tunes, which I thought was great. You know, one just before midnight and then another one around quarter to one. So um, that was great. It was like the first set and then the second set where you kind of let everything hang out. You know, it's uh, live to to live TV, national TV, and you better do it right. You better get it right. And and the, the singer or the guest artist of themselves, you know, would really put a lot into it for the for the second number. Oh, that's how it seemed to me. But um, so the week could be hectic with a lot of changes, and you got to keep your pencil and your metronome handy, you know, to mark. Uh, they want to do it a little slower. They want to do it in B flat instead of B. Um, I remember with Percy Sledge, you know, wanted to do when a man loves a woman. But he thought he could do it a little higher, so he raised <laughs> it, and it was uh, instead of keeping it in the original key, you know. And, and he was—you can see it on the uh, actual show, you know. He's straining to hit the notes. It's a tough tune as it is, you know. But he sang it great in rehearsal, and then said, "Let's take it up a half a step." So different different people made different decisions based on the rehearsal and how they felt you know they didn't want to do something that was so recognizable as their hit or they wanted to do something that was more recognizable as their hit um i remember leo sayer you know just did straight ahead versions of his hits you make me feel like dancing uh and some other one i can't remember boss gags we did lowdown and hmm. What can I say? I think that was an event because it was me and Jeff Picaro playing double double drums, wow. which was a once in a lifetime thrill. Is that lurking on so, YouTube somewhere? Where can we find that? That's on YouTube. Oh man! Okay, yeah. I'm gonna find it. Eggs on L, and it's me and Jeff playing together. And then, uh, what year was that? Maybe seventy-seven, seventy-eight, and then the next year. Jeff was out with Toto and um, Boz had a tour lined up to promote that record, Lowdown and What Can I Say and Lido and all wow. those tunes. I didn't realize you were on SNL that early. Um, like you mentioned, 77, 78, that was still like the Gilda Radner, Belushi, Aykroyd era. I wasn't in the, in the house band, but I would be called to play with the, the guest artists. Got it. They would put a band play with the guest artists i didn't actually join the house band until 86 okay but there were a bunch of different acts that i played with um you know just got the call to come and play with uh whoever it was um paul simon or um leo sayer uh 
sing. Yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of different a lot of different things. Did you ever do the Blues Brothers thing when Belushi was on there? No. Uh, we did a stuff did uh, a Chevy Chase special. I think it was right after he left SNL. We did a couple of TV things with him. I can never. I've looked for those. I can never find them. But um, Belushi and Aykroyd and Gilda Radner and Jane Curtin and um, that was the and Chevy Chase. You know, those were the original people. They were amazing, and the and the vibe at the show was amazing. And, yeah, uh, that that uh, Larry- the the early shows are in my bloodstream because even though I wasn't alive at that time, like when I was a kid growing up in the eighties, my mom uh, bought like the Time Life box set of the like the vhs you know and it was just you know it wasn't every episode but it was a lot of episodes from the 70s so from from the time i was like i don't know eight i was just wearing these videos out like laughing my ass off at that original cast so good there was some funny stuff they did back then really funny yeah when i was doing the show 86 to uh, 92 the cast was great with Phil Hartman. Right. So that was like Jan Hooks, Dennis Miller. Mike Myers. Right. Yeah. Uh, they did some original stuff. I mean, from uh, Kevin Nealon, you know, doing uh, the Schwarzenegger thing, I Want to Pump You. <laughs> right. And Dana Carvey and Mike Myers doing Wayne's World. You know, that was the original thing. And, yeah. There were a lot of great ideas. Phil Hartman doing the obsessive compulsive cook or the obsessive compulsive carpenter. God, that was so good. There was there was one of those uh, where uh, he had like John Goodman was hosting, and um, Phil did the I, was it the anal retentive chef the retentive yeah. right and so like he like the anal retentive chef had a guest chef on his show and it was John Goodman as a chef like from New Orleans um just kind of like improvising and doing whatever and and like they I think came to blows at the end of the thing or something anal retentive yeah not obsessive compulsive <laughs> well similar similar yeah um so uh the the last thing I want to ask you about before I let you go is your whole painting thing because uh you know kind of you you went to New York to be trained in that discipline. Um, but it's it, like you, you've kept on doing it, correct? Yeah. I can't stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm always interested to hear about people's, uh, you know, other interests or hobbies or, or obsessions as the case may be. Um, I'm as obsessed with cooking as I am with music, uh, even though I haven't made it my career, but, uh, how, how has your, you know, your passion for art and painting, um, interacted with your music career? Is it something completely separate that you take a break from music and turn your music brain off or, or do they, do they coincide? They totally coincide. It's uh, it's all hand eye coordination or I can't draw with my feet, but um, if I could, my feet would be involved too, but it's all uh outlet you know is the only word to describe it you know if i'm not doing the sound check or i'm not doing the gig or the the gig is over uh i still have this energy i still have this adrenaline flowing and that's what i do is pull out the sketchbook and watercolors uh 
and draw something. You know, sometimes it's nothing, but sometimes it's an idea for maybe a future painting or a, a series of drawings that I want to do. And I always have the sketchbook with me on the road, you know, in between. There's always downtime, you know, while you're waiting for the stage to be set before your sound check or between the sound check and the performance, there's some downtime. And that's a great way for me to to keep the energy flowing and keep my hands active, keep my eyes active and try to accomplish something visual uh, before I try to accomplish something musical. Right. <laughs> so the, to- the two things have always been totally related to me, you know, and if I hadn't gotten so lonely in my loft painting and talking to myself, you know, that's what I would still be doing. But the, the community of music is really uh, where my heart is and where I want to interact with people and be a part of uh, some creation, some joint creative effort. Yeah. Is, is there um, a principle or a technique uh, that you've learned in painting that you've applied directly to music, just a concept or an overall sort of ethos? Exactly. Um, the two things are so related, you know, when I think of a drum part, the first time I hear a song, I'm thinking of the, what's in the foreground, what's in the background, what are the shadings, what are the textures, uh, what are the accents, you know, just like in a good painting, uh, you've got a piece of paper or a canvas or something and you want to establish space, three-dimensional space, even though it's only two-dimensional, um, two-dimensional plane but you've got to establish uh, three-dimensional space and and draw the the viewer in the same way you would want to draw the listener in uh when you're playing you know so the two things are completely intertwined for me you know i think about drum parts and performances in the same way that i think about a successful painting or a or a giant mural you know how am i going to paint this up close, but when people are standing 50 yards away, it, it still works as a composition. Yeah. So difference between a club audience and a stadium audience, you know, you got to, uh, exaggerate the dynamics, uh, and downplay the, uh, shadings, you know, to, to get across to a bigger audience. Yeah. So all the, all the analogies, apply i mean bold strokes uh changing a head you know changing a <laughs> right. all that's brushing itself you know play with brushes and uh technique with brushes and it's all totally totally intertwined for me i i love that analogy of like establishing a three-dimensional space with shading because wh- whether it's a piece of visual art or a, a piece of musical art like you know, there's there's one or two things that that are going to jump out to everybody, right? That like everybody is going to notice right off the bat, and those are kind of the point of the whole thing. Um, right. But in both mediums, there's so much you can do um, to to build it out and create um, little spaces or shades or or things or experiences that people will notice if they spend a little more time with it, right? So like right off the bat, there's this thing, but if they just if they 
spend a little more time with it, there's all these nuances that that they'll start to notice. And thinking of your drum part in that way, it's like, okay, what's going to be the point of this? What's the thing that everybody's going to notice? What's the thing I want everybody to notice? But then for those who are going to just like go the extra mile and go a little bit deeper, what are some little cool things I can leave for them? Yeah, exactly. I love that. Me too. <laughs> have like, do you do you just have like a storage unit full of paintings somewhere? Where are where all where are all these uh, works of art that you've done over the decades? I have a storage room that has a lot of drums and instruments in it, but it's also got a lot of paintings, and I have a ton of stuff here in my apartment uh, stacked up. I've got stacks of sketchbooks, which are in uh, drawers or in cabinets and stuff. I mean, from years of sketchbooks i have these different websites where you can see you know a selected amount of stuff um but yeah they're everywhere i mean i try to give them away but (laughs) people say oh i'd love i'd love to have one of your paintings i just don't have room right (laughs) (laughs) well i would imagine in in new york apartments that's that's probably usually the truth (laughs) exactly i mean my walls are covered and uh I keep my practice space in the studio here, kind of try to try to keep it kind of zen so that I'm not thinking about one of the paintings when I'm trying to uh, work on my pair of diddle diddles. (laughs) Still working on those, huh? Never ends. Yeah. (laughs) Well, hey, man, it was it was really great to talk to you. I really appreciate you doing it. Um, Thanks. Thanks so much for taking some time with us here. Oh, my pleasure, Zach. Really a pleasure to talk to you. There you go, Chris Parker. Thanks to him for that talk. Hope you dug that. His new trio record, Tell Me, will be released September 30th, so check that out wherever you get music. Next week, Matt Krause will be talking with John Geiger, who is the accounts manager for Zildjian and Vic Firth, and also maintains a busy playing schedule in his own right. Hope you check that out. Until then, stay safe, stay sane, and thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.